Started off by saying, may I ask for the opportunity from Anandlongpo Anand and the monastic Sangha uh, to speak on the Dhamma and greetings to all of the laity. So I was introduced just before as being uh, one of the abbots of the uh, monastery. And in that monastery, the monastery in Nan province in the north, it's the newest branch of uh, Lampoanans. And so all of the monks there are quite old already, in the 50s or 60s. Uh, the youngest monk is 46. And um, so they all help to look after the monastery. We all help to look after uh, the place as a team. And just how Venerable Ajahn Chah taught that we need to work together, we need to have um, togetherness, this harmony, we need to be able to share our views and opinions. And this is something that is important. Because if I suppose that I really am the abbot of the monastery, then there may be arguments that come up, there may be, or rather that we may manage the monastery in a way that isn't according to the Dhamma. And so we all lend a hand, we all help each other out, we all kind of share our opinions on how things should be done, and we get the feeling that we're working together as a team. And so there's a coming together of all the monks, and as the Buddha taught, that the harmony of the community leads to happiness. So why, one may ask, do we need to build a monastery? Why is that useful? Well, it gives a place for the lay people to come that they can uh, rely on, they can find um, some solace there. And in Nan province, they don't yet have a branch monastery of Wat Mabjan. There's Ajahn Sombun's monastery in Chiang Mai, which is relatively close by, the place where we're building. <coughs> This new monastery, um, the conditions are good. It's quite quiet, there isn't very much music or other sounds. And so it's in the future will probably become an important place for people to practice the Dhamma. So when we talk about practicing the Dhamma, that the motivation to do that is happiness, that all people want happiness. But there are different kinds of happiness. There's happiness in the dimension of the world and happiness in the dimension of the sasana, of religion. So if we look at the dimension of the world, the way that people understand that is fun equals happiness. And the more fun we have, then the happier we are. 
So like on New Year's Day or other celebrations that we have, other events, and people get delighted and in entertainment, they have a lot of fun and we say that we're very happy. But this happiness in the dimension of the world is a temporary happiness. And it's also a happiness that we need to use our money on, we need to give our energy to. And it only lasts for a short time. It's not like the happiness of the Buddha Sasana. So the Buddha taught that the highest happiness comes from peace and that no other happiness can compare to this. So the happiness in the Sasana, in Buddhism, it lasts longer. And it comes from peace. It comes from peace of mind and leads us to seeing the truth. So the Buddha taught this, that true happiness arises from peace. So for us, we still need to live in this world, however. We're still in our societies and we can't really be separated from society. We need to speak with people, we need to live our lives. But in what way will we live our lives? Uh, through the worldly dimension or the dimension of the religion? Because the world mostly follows the way of materialism these days. We think that the more possessions people have, the more money they have, then the happier they're going to feel. And the more stable and secure their lives are. But we shouldn't forget that there's suffering involved in this. In gaining this world, we need, in getting this wealth, we need to seek it out, and there's suffering in that. And then we need to use that wealth, and there's suffering in having to give that up for things, and seeing our wealth go. And there's suffering in having it all gone, because we need to find that wealth anew. So really, there's always suffering there. And if we compare it to the dimension, the Buddhist dimension, and then we'll see that it's different, a different kind of happiness. So just like for us, we're joining in this retreat, the short period of practice, and we're keeping the five precepts or the eight precepts. We're living our lives in quite a, an easy way, in quite a simple way. And so we don't need to go searching for things like people in the world do. We can just eat a small amount of simple food, just live in quite a basic place. And so if we're going to compare these two dimensions, the dimension of the world and the dimension of Buddhism, which one gives us more happiness? And in attending this retreat, we're able to make that comparison. Even though while we're practicing, we may not experience all that much peace. At the very least, we don't have to exhaust ourselves from seeking that happiness like we do from seeking happiness in the world. There may be some aches in our back, in our um, waist, in our shoulders from sitting. But this is suffering that's for the sake of long-term happiness. And when we do experience peace, 
when there's joy, when there's this contentment, fullness of heart that comes up, then we will see the value of what we've been doing. And we can compare it to the happiness that we have experienced through worldly means. And we can see how this happiness that we get through practicing Dhamma brings great value, it has far more benefit. It's not like the happiness of the world. So the Buddha taught that even though we may gain much wealth and possessions, none of that is able to uh, stay with us after we die. It's not able to go with us. And that we're able to have money and a car and a house and a family is because we have breath. And if we stop breathing, then we stop owning anything. But we usually don't think about that. We don't contemplate it. We don't contemplate how we need to get old. We need to experience sickness and pain, and then we need to die. And when death happens to someone we love, then we cry. But Venerable Ajahn Chah, he gave quite a, a pithy teaching that if we cry when someone dies, wouldn't it be much better to cry when they're born? Because when we get born, what we're doing is applying for death. We see a child is born and we're happy because their face is like their father's or mother's. They have uh, physical features like other relatives. And we see them and we're happy. But when their breath runs out, then they're suffering, then we cry. So Ajahn Chah taught us to look at the whole picture, taught us to view this right until the end, and how this suffering we experience on death, that it has its origins. And so it'd be better to cry when someone is born, because upon being born, we need to die. But people don't really think about this in the world. They don't view things in this way. If we don't contemplate, then we won't see its truth. So the Buddha, he taught and he also gave his example as well. That was one of his teachings. So he himself went out to ordain. He left his uh, wife who had just given birth. And that was uh, because he had gone out of the palace uh, and seen the four heavenly messengers. His father, the king, had, before he went out, had ordered uh, some ministers to clear up the place so he didn't see anything unpleasant. But still, he saw someone who was old, someone who was sick, and a dead corpse. And he'd never really thought about this. But when he saw it, then he contemplated and he saw how we all need to get old, get sick and die. And that reflection is what allowed him to ordain. So he left his wife, who had just given birth to his son, Rahula, and he wanted to take a, a final look at them before he left, but he didn't dare. 
because he knew that if he did, then his wife would probably wake up and he wouldn't be able to go. So he just left immediately with the charity Channa. He was next in line to be king, but he knew that that kind of happiness was a fake happiness. It wasn't genuine. So for us, we live our lives. Um, and we should take the Buddha as our example for how we live our lives. How the Buddha taught us to find a true happiness, a long-lasting happiness, which isn't the happiness of the world. But this world can be very um, chaotic these days. There's one teacher who said that if an apple was just a fruit, then the world would be a simple place. But these days an apple is no longer an apple, that it's a phone now. And so this is something that we can all think about, um, that the world wouldn't be such a chaotic place if an apple was just an apple. So we should try to use and live our lives in a way that is simple. And even though we have this technology, we try and use that in a way that gives benefit. But for the most part, these bits of technology are just tools of the defilements. We see how wars come up. And the reason that they're able to start is because of greed, hatred and delusion. There are these three bombs in a heart. And this is the cause of all of the chaos in the world, all of the problems. Are these three bombs of greed, hatred and delusion. And so if we're just developing these bombs, um, then, and we use them to live our lives, to take care of our family or in our workplace, uh, to um, take care of our household, then the house no longer becomes a house. It becomes a place of aggravation, a place of discomfort. So we need to suppress these bombs. because they are what cause problems in this world. So the Buddha taught us to abandon these things, and through abandoning them, through disarming them, we're able to solve all of our problems, and the world would become a happy place to live in. So even in previous times, um, people didn't have technology like we do now, but in any case, if their defilements are as strong as they are of the people now, then they still use them for harm. Um, and so it doesn't really matter how developed these tools are, that if there are defilements there using them, then they'll be used for harm. It's just that with the development of these tools, then they um, expand their potential for destruction. So as the defilements increase in power, so to the bombs in the heart increase in potency. And in the, in the end, the world is no longer really is a world anymore. There's just chaos. And it's difficult to find peace. So there's a great teacher who said that um, in the future, if, if people are going to find peace and happiness in this world, then they need to live in quite a small community, in a 
kind of separated community or in a monastery. Because if we stay out in society, it can be quite difficult. If we don't know much about how to use technology, then people say that we're stupid. They say that we're not up to date. Because most people can use these things. It's the way of the world. That's the happiness of the world. But if we have an understanding within us, then we can speak in terms of worldly ways and worldly things. We say one thing, but our hearts are another thing. And we, even though we say these things, we know that the true happiness is to be found within our hearts. So we need to be able to separate out these two different dimensions in order to be able to live in this world well, in order to be able to stay in our societies. Because we can't just go off and live by ourselves. We have families, we have friends. We need to stay with one another. And so it can be the the, the it can happen that if we go to practice the Dhamma, that there may be members of our family who disagree with that, and they may argue about our practicing the Dhamma. So we need to know how to be able to respond, how to be able to, to speak uh, to people in the world, how to be able to live our lives in the world, but just do that externally, but our hearts are living in the Dhamma. We need to know how to separate these two outs, these two out, and see how there are these different kinds of happiness that come from these two dimensions, that of the Dhamma and that of the world. If it's the world, then it's just delight in pleasures and entertainment. But the happiness of Buddhism, we need peace, and that peace is the the mainstay, it's the principal factor. So we may have a room in our house that we set aside for chanting, for meditation. Or we may have a study or maybe a garden and some place that is quiet, some place that isn't um, tied up with the world that we can spend time by ourselves, for ourselves. Because the technology that um, we have and what we know about that, really it's, it's enough. But we don't really need much more than this. So they say that in the future, the things that um, can be sold in virtual reality they'll actually have more value than real things. And we may think that this is quite strange, but really according to Buddhism it's not all that strange. Because these virtual things, these things that aren't actually real, they don't decay, they don't have to deteriorate. But the things of the world do, these material things do. And so this technology um, increases and develops. You see, before there was 2G, 3G, 4G, and 5G, and how many Gs have we got to go? That um, things just carry on in this way and they become more and more chaotic. 
But the Buddha taught um, that we need to understand the truth, the truth of the world. How when we're born, this leads on to old age, sickness and death. And really people want to be able to stay around forever. They want things to last. Uh, but that, is, um, that desire is deluded. So even though these things in virtual reality, they may stay around, um, they'll just increase the amount of ignorance that we have. So we need to come back and look in the Buddha Sasana, in this Buddhist religion, and turn to Buddhism. Because if we don't do that, then with each passing day, our lives will become more and more frantic. And we'll just be deceiving ourselves and being deceived by others as well. It'll just be this virtual reality. So if we're going to live our lives according to Buddhism, and we need to be following the truth. We need to be following the things that the Buddha taught. Just like how he taught that it's difficult um, to gain happiness from this world. That if we try seeking out that happiness in the world, it's very hard to come by. And that happiness just lasts for a short while, it's just temporary. But if we're going to find happiness in Buddhism, and then what do we have to do? Well, we have to practice, just like all of us are doing. Walking meditation, sitting meditation, taking uh, mindfulness as our principle, as the foundation. So have we noticed that while we've been listening to these Dhamma talks, that there's an emphasis that's placed on sati, as mindfulness, and sampajanya, as clear knowing? If we don't understand, we can think that these two things are the same. But Ajahn Chah said that sati, it's like these drops of water. But then as we turn the tap further, then the drops turn into a single stream. And that constancy there is sampajanya. There's also Ajahn Buddhadasa who said that, who spoke about these four genuine friends that we need to associate with these four dhammas. And so what are those? So there's mindfulness, there's wisdom, there's sampajanya, and there's samadhi. So wisdom, there are many kinds of wisdom that we use in different situations. And it's sampajanya that um, tells us which kind of wisdom is appropriate for each occasion. We also need this firmness and stability and samadhi in the heart as well. And so these four friends of uh, mindfulness, wisdom, and clear knowing and samadhi are things that we should associate with. Anyone who's interested, they can uh, look up this talk by Ajahn Buddhadasa and find out more. So with all the methods that we have of cultivating peace, these all rely upon mindfulness. They all depend upon mindfulness. And this is what the great teachers have taught. 
and trying to get us to find a skillful means to develop mindfulness in all postures. So the Buddha taught mostly about mindfulness of breathing. And why is that? It's because it's something which is with us already. Out of all of you sitting here, who isn't breathing? And if you're not, then that means you're dead already. So the fact that we're all able to see each other's faces on the screen means that we all are breathing. But we may not be recollecting this breath. And there's a teacher who said that you know, when we're tired or fed up, then we breathe out, we go, and that there is anapanasati, that is mindfulness of breathing. But this is kind of a, a concrete way of looking at it, a, a physical way. But if we don't recollect it, then we don't see really what's going on. Because there's ample oxygen in this world and we don't need to struggle for it. And because there's so much, we don't see the value of it and therefore we forget about it. So therefore we need to try to find a means to use in our daily lives, to live our lives well. And that's what the great teachers have taught. So there are also other meditation objects as well, but some of these require kind of a tool that we need to use, like the casino meditations. Uh, but, and the Buddha taught many different kinds of meditation um, because people's characteristics or dispositions aren't the same. So I once asked uh, Longpo Anan whether it's necessary to stay with just one meditation object in every posture that I use. He said, well, it's, it's not really necessary. When we're sitting meditation, you can recite Buddha and stay with the breath. Whatever helps to bring the mind to peace, then use that. So we should observe for ourselves what the results of these different meditation objects are, which things that we apply our minds to that bring us peace and happiness. And when we do that, we, um, then we should try to keep our mind with that. And we shouldn't allow ourselves to forget that. So like if we're doing walking, then, and our minds are quite scattered, then we can, um, instead of reciting Buddha, we can recite left, right, left, right with each step. And that may help to bring up mindfulness. And so these are just means to bring our minds to the present moment. It's like this breath, for example, is here in the present moment. And so bringing the mind to the breath, it keeps it here. So, the great teachers, they can say that if we don't know where our minds are, and if we don't know whether they're with the breath or not, and they've just gone somewhere else, then we can try stop breathing. And what's that like? Well, the mind won't be so scattered anymore. And um, it will come here, come back to the body, because it feels uncomfortable. And so this is a means that we can use to um, be developing mindfulness, to be bringing our mindfulness back to the present moment. 
Or like if we're sitting and then we get up to maybe go to the bathroom or to have a drink and then we remember that while we were sitting in meditation we didn't really know what we were doing. We weren't sure whether our mind was with Buddha or with the breath. Then we should go back and sit down again and bring the mind back to Buddha and the breath and then get up again and go to do whatever we're doing. Or if we're drinking water and we forget Buddha, then we put down the glass and bring our mind back to the meditation board and then we can pick it up again. So we need to find a method to cultivate our mindfulness so that it becomes quick and so that it's something that we can stay with. And so what we normally do, it's just habitual. We usually don't really have our mindfulness with us. We just do things out of habit. And this doing things out of habit, it, it is a kind of mindfulness, but Ajahn Chah said that it's like the mindfulness of a cat that's catching a mouse. So it's, it's not really mindful. But mindfulness in Buddhism, we need to have that intention there as well, to have intention in all postures. Because it can be uh, difficult, especially if we're quite old, to sit for long periods. We may get back aches, or our bones may have problems. If we're able to keep our mind with peace, then that can be okay. But if not, then the painful feelings can just grow and grow. But when we're young, we don't really experience this so much. And even so, during our lives, we often don't develop much mindfulness. And we can ask ourselves, well, during the space of 24 hours, how many of those do we spend chanting and sitting in meditation? And how many hours do we spend through the day just allowing our minds to wander off? So we should take up a meditation object that we feel comfortable and proficient with, like Buddha, for example, any of these other meditation objects, and try to stay with that, whether we're eating or drinking or speaking or listening. To have that intention there, so like if we're drinking, then as we pick up the glass, we do that with Buddha as well. If we forget to have Buddha, then we put it down and start anew. So we need to find a means to bring our mindfulness to the present moment. And if we don't have a kamatana, a meditation object, that can be quite difficult to do. So one of the teachers have said that it's like we have a monkey that just won't sit still. And we need to get a rope, a rope and tie it around its neck and tie the other end to a pole. And so our minds are the same. That if we don't have the rope of mindfulness tied to a pole of the meditation object, then the mind's going to jump around just like a monkey. It won't be still. And if we don't give that monkey water, if we don't give it food, then it's going to run out of energy and settle down. And so it's just like our minds. There are some people who say that 
they're just developing mindfulness, but there's no need to really sit in meditation or do formal practice. But that's not what the great teachers of this forest tradition have taught. They place an importance on meditation, of bringing this mind to one object, of tying them together, whatever it is that we're doing. And even though we may not see the fruits of that, at the very least, what we come to realize is the harm in the cycle of samsara. Because this practice of Dharma, it has a goal. Like for monks, when we come to ordain, the goal of our holy life is for the end of suffering. And even while we're walking this path, that perhaps we don't experience much peace, or maybe we do feel some peace, but we still have a goal. And it's like a runner, that if they don't have that victory line, then they'll never start running. So for many lay people living in the world, they're very, very wealthy, they have so many possessions, um, so many things that they don't know what else there is to even want anymore. Um, but they're unfortunate because they don't, for the most part, they don't have any goals. But for us, even though our lives can be quite difficult, but we have this target, and that is practicing for the end of suffering. And this brings great value to our lives, gives more value. And we need to reach this goal in one life. There has to be some time that we attain to arahantship. Because the cycle of samsara goes on and on for a very, very long time. And Lungta Mahabua, he said that it's like an ant that is kind of crawling around the edge of a basket. And it's just going around and around the rim of this basket. And it doesn't know that it's just going to the same old place over and over again. It thinks that it's going someplace new. And so it carries walking around and around. And so being stuck in samsara is like this. And that's how the arahants view us. And us still being stuck here. It's what our lives are like. They're like an ant. Uh, crawling around the rim of a basket, and there's no end to it. But we need to try to find an end, because the Buddha taught that in this world there's just suffering, dukkha, that arises, stays and ceases, and just that. And people try to find happiness here, but that happiness is a non-entity, because in this world there is just dukkha. So like when we chant, um, we chant apiyehi sampayogo dukkho, that association with the disliked is dukkha, piyehi vipayogo dukkho, separation from the liked is dukkha, yampi chang nalabanti tampi dukkang, that not attaining one's wishes is dukkha. So in conclusion, it's just dukkha. We want something. And the more that we want, then the more unsettled we feel. 
And even when we get that, then we feel discomfort as well, because we have to kind of worry about it. Then when it goes, we think about it even more, think about how to get some more. And people who have a lot of things, then when they're sick, then they worry whether their children will fight over their wealth when they're gone. So we need to get our lives in a state of balance, how to know enoughness, and to live our lives in a way that isn't really difficult, to follow this path of Dhamma. And wouldn't it be better to live our lives for the sake of the end of suffering? To view the world in this way. Because we can think that um, perhaps one day we'll get a stroke or maybe some other illness and we may be bedridden, just stuck there on a bed in the hospital just by ourselves. And maybe some people come to visit us, some family, some friends, but they stay for just a short time and then they have to go and we're by ourselves again. And who is it that's going to suffer then? Well, it's us. So we need to find something that we can depend upon. We need to seek out these four friends that I've mentioned of mindfulness and wisdom and clear knowing and samadhi. Because if one day we are just stuck on a bed by ourselves and we don't have anything to depend upon, then what are we going to feel like? How much suffering is there going to be then? This is something that we should reflect upon now so that we can find methods to lift our mind up, to be developing mindfulness, to be making our minds better. But throughout this practice, we shouldn't forget that the purpose of cultivating Dhamma is for the end of suffering. And in one day, in one lifetime, we need to be able to reach that. We must uh, attain to arahantship. And this is the goal that we have. So whenever we create any merit, we shouldn't forget to set our hearts upon this. And to recite uh, Nibbana Pachayohotu, that the, the, may this, this goodness be for the sake of Nibbana. So may you all set your hearts on this. And we'll just sit for a bit longer now, and then we'll ring the bell and bow together.